Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crises, visit Sojo.net. Reverend Jeffrey L. Brown is a nationally recognized leader and expert in gang, youth, and urban violence reduction and coalition building. As the founder of RECAP, or Rebuilding Every City Around Peace, Rebuilding Every City Around Peace, an international initiative building partnerships between the faith-based community, government, and law enforcement agencies to reduce gang violence. Brown is one of the architects of the Boston Miracle. Reverend Brown serves as associate pastor of the historic 12th Baptist Church in Boston, one of the oldest African-American churches in the nation. And he is the author of a forthcoming book on his experiences. It's titled The Courage to Listen. And Paramount Pictures is developing a feature film based on Jeff Brown's experiences. So thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today. Good to hear your voice again, Jeff. So welcome to the soul of a nation, old friend. And I want to start with Jeffrey. How is your spirit? How's your spirit these days? Yeah, my spirit is has been renewed um, in the process of the last few weeks. You know, the tragedy that has occurred with uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd has blossomed into this renewal of strength that's coming from within not only the African-American community, but in, in cities all over the country where people are recognizing uh, the inequities of that are just blatant within our communities. And rather than ignoring it, people are willing or wanting to do something about it. And so uh, for someone who's been at this fight for the better part of 30 years, uh, what I've been seeing on the streets and watching these young people blossom, it, it has renewed my spirit. Mm. I like that language, uh, fiasco has blossomed. Um, it's, uh, you and I know the language biblically of a Kairos moment, Kairos time. That's what this also feels like to me. So we first met, Jeff, when you and others were instigating, catalyzing, creating something that became called the Boston Miracle. Let's go back several years to that. What was the Boston Miracle? How did it come about? Yeah. Um, you know, people always talk about it as, as if it was, um, you know, some kind of miracle that, that came from God. And, 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 you know, and if you look at it from, you know, 10,000 feet, it may feel like that or look like that, but, uh, it was a lot of hard work, but at the core of it, it was community leaders and faith leaders um, deciding that what was happening within their community was untenable and that the only way to address it is for, for themselves to get personally involved. And so for me, 
it as a pastor, it was understanding that there was no youth program that I could build that could attract the youth that really needed the program. Um, those who were not at risk, but those who uh, were actively involved in uh, creating the violence, those were the ones who needed to be reached. And they weren't coming to the church. And so I had to come out of the four walls of my sanctuary and meet the youth where they were. And there were a number of us who got together after a tragic incident in Boston, and we started to walk in arguably one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city uh, in order to find a way to stop the violence. And so what was miraculous about uh, Boston and, and the reduction in violence is that you had what I would call uh, traditionally conflicting constituencies, which is faith leaders and uh, law enforcement, which includes the police department and uh, probation department on the uh, court side, and um, those who were running city and community agencies all coming together and working together in order to uh, reduce the violence uh, in the community. And this was in a city that traditionally was racked with racial strife. And we were able to sort of cross boundaries with um, certain segments of the police department and probation in order to, to help uh, save a generation. Hmm. I remember a story you told at the time where you were the pastor of a Union Baptist Church and there was this uh, terrible incident on a Saturday night, I believe, when nobody was at church, uh, right outside your church. And I remember you were saying your church had to pray if they were responsible for what happens outside the church, on the streets, in front of the church, even when nobody's at church. And that was a very transforming moment for you and your congregation. It was. It was uh, two young men. Uh, uh, Rigoberto Carrion and Jesse McKee and were killed uh, in, uh, outside the housing project that was right down the street from my church. And when I was told later on that evening what happened, uh, you know, one of the youth was running up Main Street. Uh, we're on the other end of Main Street, but they were running towards in the direction of the church. And I realized that if if he would have gotten to the church, it wouldn't have made any difference because the lights were out and nobody was home. And just praying about, um, you know, that incident. And um, these young men were not members of my church. They, their families weren't members of, of, of my church or of any churches that I knew. Um, and, you know, was this something that I needed to be concerned about? And, and then that's when I realized um, this paradox, which was, you know, in all the preaching that I was doing, I was also preaching about bringing the community together. But there was a certain segment of the Congre of, of the community that I didn't include in my definition of community, and that was those years who were committing those acts of violence. So the paradox was if I really wanted the community I was preaching for, I needed to redefine what that meant and reach out to those who were, you know, 
at risk to the violence. I remember you and others there told me at the time that when there was another youth homicide or youth violence, that the police would often just gather up a bunch of black men and just kind of beat them up and throw them out again. And, and, and then you, there was another incident you just referred to a moment ago where, where another uh, killing happened and, and, and uh, even at, at, at the wake, there was a confrontation and you all, maybe, so there was another incident that happened and, and uh, even at the wake, there was a confrontation. Explain how that happened, how that led you all to say, wait a minute, we've got to go out in the streets in those very dangerous neighborhoods not Sunday morning, but but at night when, in fact, a lot of this was occurring, that led you out to the streets. Yeah, there, we we called that incident um, over the years the Morning Star incident because it happened at the Morning Star Baptist Church in the Mattapan section of Boston. It's in 1992, and um, there was a young man who had been killed. His name was Robert Odom, and he had been killed. Um, in, in a drive-by house party, I believe it was his birthday, and um, they sort of shot up uh, the house, and um, he was one of the ones who uh, got hit and killed. During the wake of his funeral, a young man came in off the street, and what the family knew about this young man is that he and Robert were friends together, but there was a gang across the street who knew that this young man was a member of a rival gang and they thought he was coming in to uh, disrespect or maybe even desecrate the body. Well, they ran in after him and he saw them. He started running. They pulled out the weapons. They started shooting in the middle of this wake. And when the pastor came out to see what the commotion was, they were literally stabbing this young man in front of the altar. And, um, he literally had to throw himself on the person uh, in order to get them to stop. And I remember that meeting that he called. He called for a meeting of all the clergy in the Boston area to come together because a line was crossed. And there was over 350 clergy there. And he started, he started off the meeting by pointing out the bullet holes that were in the walls of the sanctuary. And he said, it's it's time for us to do something about it. But Jim, since you're clergy, you know how some of these clergy meetings go. You know, you can meet and meet and meet and people will talk and talk and talk. But, um, you know, very little action comes out of it. But in the middle of those meetings, I was um, befriending folks who had the same vision that I had, who um, were doing the similar work that I was doing. We just weren't doing it together. So I met Ray Hammond and Gene Rivers and uh, Hesse Harris and Nellie Yarbrough and Susie Thomas and um, Gilbert Thompson. And, you know, we all started sitting together talking about, you know, we really need to get out on the streets and try to understand this world that these youth have created. And so they decided to start a street committee, named one of us as a chair. And so we started meeting Friday nights, 10 o'clock at night, in the four corner section of Dorchester. And we started walking. And that's how um, the faith based piece of this started to emerge. So the action was literally a handful of you as clergy went to the streets in those most dangerous neighborhoods. 
and yeah. begin to form relationships. Yeah. I mean, the real aim for us was to, was to learn and not, um, and not preach. And, you know, I'm a Baptist preacher, you know, how difficult that can be sometimes, but, um, we literally went out into the streets and said, um, we don't know our own neighborhoods after 9 p.m. at night, you know, between 9 p.m. and 5 a.m., but you do. And so talk to us. Help us to see what we're not seeing. Help us to understand what we're not understanding. And we got this extraordinary education of what life was like on the streets of our own neighborhoods. And then we asked them a question. We said, we're not just pastors in the area. We represent an institution in our community, a positive institution in our community. How do you see this institution helping this situation on the streets so that we could have peace for everybody? And, you know, they came up with ideas and they put a plan together around that and they formed a coalition around that plan. And then that's how the 10 point coalition came into me. 10 point plan, 10 point coalition. But again, it wasn't just ideas, a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of risk. And then it led to the police chief at some point uh, talking about the, 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 the reduction in youth violence. I think it was like 79% reduction and he gave credit to, to you all, clergy, for this change in Boston. Yeah, we went from a high of, I believe it was 152 homicides, 1,100 gun shootings, to 34 homicides. And, um, and a, a, an astounding reduction in, in gun shootings. Um, and when I talk to people about it, they say, wow, you know, it was just you all. I'm like, no, it wasn't just us. It was everybody. I mean, when people began to see that something was happening, you know, you had community mothers, you know, come out and do things. You had, um, you know, uh, coaches of, of, of football and basketball teams coming out and do something. We had street in our city who who played uh, an enormous uh, part in, uh, you know, bringing um, different youth from different neighborhoods together to, you know, play together and, and, and try to get to know one another, to try to humanize. Because, you know, the real miracle was the humanization of everyone in the city. So you had police officers, you know, who stopped looking at the youth as uh, thugs or as, you know, animals or, or, you know, as anything other than human. And they started to see, you know, that these are youth who come out of family systems, who come out of situations, who are, you know, in this uh, system that has been created and they're struggling with it. Uh, and then you had youth who saw, you know, probation officers and, other folks in law enforcement as, you know, not just as the enemy, but as people who uh, are not only trying to, um, you know, bring, you know, order to uh, a city, but to also, you know, find a way to, you know, help the neighborhoods that they grew up in. And so, you know, there was this, there was this really strong humanization process 
that uh, sort of came as a result of people who didn't traditionally work together, you know, begin to do so. When did all this happen? Give us a time frame for this. Yeah. So that happened in the 90s, largely between 1990 and 1998. And then, you know, there were um, other manifestations of this work that went out, uh, I think, around 1995, about three years into the work that we were doing in the community. We had an academic come in. His name was David Kennedy. And he came up with another um, you know, iteration of, of this work. Um, and, um, you know, we started doing these call-ins where we bring in gang members and there would be two audiences. There would be the law enforcement who would say, look, you know, we, we we're watching you. We, we we're aware of your activities. We could take you in right now, but we're not going to because there are these community people here and they want to talk to you. And then we would say, look, we, we love you. We, we, you know, um, are praying for you. We don't want to do your funeral, uh, but there are some services that you can uh, avail yourself of, and we'd like to, you know, to help you with that. And you know, so it, it was just another way for people to see that you know these not folks who were just you know wanting to shoot and and, and do drugs and all of that, but these are folks who are engaged in a struggle, and if they had another option you know, other than the ones that the streets offered them, that they would take it. So this was 30 years ago. <laughs> I remember when we, we used to come up and uh, watch this and learn, and we actually got to help uh, report this in Sojourners way back then. We were both young men then, and I, you were a younger man than me back then. But now here we are, and you talk about this fiasco that's blossomed. So here we are many years later. Now, on a recent call with a bunch of his faith leaders, you said this in this moment now. It may not appear that there is a relationship between police brutality and the violence that you see on the streets, but that's a misnomer. All of it is connected. And you specifically linked to what you call structure, a structural weakness. Structural weakness. Can you say more about this? And how would you link this to calls for defunding the police or reimagining or reshaping or restarting police and reinvesting in communities and structural weaknesses that you point out. Sure. So, um, you know, in order to understand that, you have to understand the history of what's happened in Boston from the 90s until now. We had this dramatic reduction in violence, but then the violence started to rise again. Uh, and it's reached another peak around 2006. Uh, and then, you know, we were able to um, mobilize again and go out into the streets again. And then we had another reduction. But there's a cycle that occurs and the cycle of violence that goes up and down. And that is due to the structural weaknesses that are within a community. So we about failed housing policies for decades and redlining and the effects of all of that. When you talk about chronic underemployment and unemployment uh, within uh, the inner cities and in communities of color, when you talk about poor education uh, of the uh, system itself or um, you know of the, of the resources, uh, educational resources for young people within inner cities. When you talk about poor health care, uh, 
and then on top of all of that, you throw in guns and you throw in drugs and little wonder that you see this culture of violence, the culture of violence emerge, um, you know, for folks to deal with. And so what I began to see was that, you know, it, it doesn't matter if we bring everybody together to work together to reduce the violence if we don't fix the structural issues that continues to brew the, um, the conditions that create the violence in the first place. And so I've always seen my work as one half of a completed work that would involve advocacy and activism. And, um, and it's true, there is a link between uh, police brutality and what happens with with youth out on the streets, and the connection uh, is around that the, the the main the maintenance I should say say it again, Jim. Um, there is a connection between uh, the youth and the violence that they um, continue to foment, and the police brutality that we see out on the streets. And the obvious connection is the structure that sort of maintains this adversarial role. Uh, and so, you know, what, you know, what happened with um, uh, the series of, of um, murders that have occurred at the hands of the police that people have been protesting all these years, uh, you know, sort of has culminated with George Floyd, but it's been brewing for years. I mean, Jim and I, uh, Jim, you remember that you and I were in Ferguson um, uh, during the time of uh, Michael Brown's death. And, you know, it was a, a, a ton of clergy that came down. I think it was in October of, of 2014. And, you know, we were there and uh, I was there uh, with uh, Reverend Michael McBride and his Live Free campaign of the PICO uh, network. And, um, you know, uh, you, you, you can see it in, in everybody's face that's out there protesting that, you know, that if, if there isn't a change, you know, there was really going to be, uh, you know, a serious uprising. And that has sort of culminated with uh, the advent of the death of, of Mr. Floyd that, um, You've got all these folks, um, black people, brown people, uh, white people, everybody coming together saying uh, a change has to happen. Uh, we can't allow this structure to continue the way it is because it just continues, uh, you know, grinding a people down and people are tired of it. What I want all of our listeners to hear as they're listening to you is, while we're learning a lot about this phrase now, the culture of policing, which we're learning a lot more about in terms of uh, bias, in terms of uh, pol white police treating uh, black lives differently than white lives again and again, that every black parent in the country who saw the George Floyd video saw their sons and daughters and themselves under that that white knee, which is not just a police knee, but a system. While we're learning about that police cult, that culture of policing, you're taking this even deeper to the culture of violence that surrounds the culture of 
policing. It isn't just let's change the culture of policing, which we have to do. But you're saying it goes deeper to this culture of violence is very institutionally rooted, systems rooted, right? Say more about how it's more than just changing policing culture. It's the culture of violence that's underneath it all. Right. I think people are beginning to understand that the police department is just the law enforcement arm of a much bigger system that needs to change. You can, you can, you know, create as much training as you need that could satisfy the moment, but that's all it will do, satisfy the moment. If the conditions are still in place, then, you know, another flashpoint will occur. So if you have people uh, straining to live under the weight of a system that seeks to constantly dehumanize, then um, it doesn't matter how much training the police would get. You will always have a city who will look at uh, communities of color as uh, you know, less than the other parts of the city. It will always feel like a containment strategy from the vantage point of communities of color where, you know, as long as we keep the violence in those neighborhoods and in that section of the city, then, then you know, the city would be all right. And people are not judging the health of the city on the least, the lost and the left out, but they're judging the health of the city based upon the success of the successful few. And as long as the system continues to um, reign in that way, then you will always have uh, the threat of a rebellion that will come from communities uh, who can't take it anymore. And that's what we're seeing right now. So when I say that um, things need to change, I mean everything needs to change. I mean the way we do housing needs to change. The way we do employment uh, needs to change. The way uh, we deal with health care uh, needs to change. Everything needs to change if things are going to uh, if we're if we are going to break the cycle uh, that we're constantly seeing over these years around violence. So everything needs to change. That's the point that we need to understand at the deeper level. I remember a conversation we had just a couple of weeks ago. You said you weren't surprised that Minneapolis was a location that ignited this movement and hopefully this momentum. Share a bit about your own experience with Minneapolis, especially over the past few years, and why you weren't surprised this got sparked in Minneapolis. So um, I had done some work uh, with the Police Foundation. Police Foundation was uh, a nonprofit independent uh, organization that was contracted by the Obama administration to do consent decrees for law enforcement agencies. The consent decree is the judicial uh, arm, or, or I should say the consent decree is uh, the Department of Justice way of reigning in a police department when uh, we have these uh, of uh, of an when we have an overabundance of police-involved shootings. And, um, you know, you've got law enforcement folks who have used excessive force far too much. It came 
in part out of um, President Obama's 21st Century Policing Initiative, in which um, I was a participant of. And so um, in 2016, there was an incident in Minneapolis where um, uh, it was an officer-involved shooting that occurred, and the uprising that happened with the community led to them literally taking over a police precinct. And um, so we were called in as a part of a uh, collaborative reform effort to document that and bring in a prescription for the police department. And when we went in there, it was very clear that um, that there was a, a clear rift between law enforcement and police department. And there was animosity that was coming from from both sides. And there were some failures in leadership. All of that was documented um, and and submitted as a report that and those uh, consent decrees are always seen as the bane of of a police department's uh, existence because it really takes the control out of their hands and puts it in the hands of the justice department but um in you know and there were a number of things that they needed to do there in minneapolis uh, it's as bad as the community says um but what happened in 2016 was an election and uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. And the day after um, uh, Jeff Sessions took over as attorney general, all of the uh, policing reforms and all of the consent decrees that were mandated by the Justice Department were wiped out. It was erased. And so what we saw in Minneapolis was a powder keg that was about to explode, but there was no uh, mechanism that was put in place to, to do anything about it. And so when it happened, when George Floyd was killed, um, you know, it just said to me that, you know, uh, it took four years, but, you know, it was bound to happen. Uh, when you don't have any oversight, when you don't have any accountability, uh, it just allows those negative elements to foment and to grow. So just a few days ago, uh, there was a meeting. I saw this discussion in Minneapolis, and I watched the head of the police union in the Minneapolis Police Department. I'm not sure it's called fraternal order or union. They're called different things. But it was a white head of the police union that had been there for years. And here's what he was saying. He was saying, let's go slow with these efforts to reform the police. Let's make sure we know what we're doing and not rush into anything. Let's take our time and go very slowly. So in terms of what you know about that police department, what's behind that kind of uh, statement by the head of the police union so let's slow down, take a breath. Let's not move quickly here. Let's get everybody involved and go slowly. Yeah, it's the same kind of mentality um, that uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King faced in Birmingham when he had a group of white pastors write him a letter and say, let's slow down. And, uh, you know, let's 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 not resort to all of this. Um, um, you know, extraneous activity, but let's allow a process to get in place. 
And um, Dr. King, you know, responded by saying, uh, you know, we, you know, these things are always seen to roll on wheels of inevitability, but it's not so. When you're on the receiving side of all of this uh, injustice, um, you know, the time is never going to come eventually, but the time is now. And we live in uh, uh, the era of now. And so uh, with, uh, with Mr. Crow, who was that police union president, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of tactic that helps people, uh, you know, not only, uh, quote unquote, get back to normal, but to also forget the sting of what happened, uh, with Mr. George Floyd. But, uh, you know, at this point, I'm pretty confident that not only Minneapolis, but the whole nation has awakened to what's happening. And, um, you know, we're at a point now where we don't want to see a slowdown. You know, uh, we don't want to see uh, an, a, an eventuality where, you know, if there were a thousand people killed by the police uh, last year, that we would see 800 and then 600 and then 400. That's ridiculous. And so we're at a point now where we want things to stop now. We want police departments to respect the community now. We want people to see the humanity in us and respect us like they respect uh, people in their own communities. We want to see the kind of respect and the kind of deference uh, that they do in their own communities be done in ours. Um, you know, there are people who will say, um, you know, uh, defunding the police means eliminating the police. Most people don't believe that, but they do believe that uh, police departments are, are you know, making uh, enormous amounts of money, right? And they make it off of the backs of the threat of violence that comes from inner city communities with conditions that have been created by a larger system that helps to maintain uh, the violence that happens in the community. And so things need to change where, you know, a a lot of the money that's been given to police needs to be diverted into communities, um, you know, to provide services, to help to relieve some of the pressure that comes from this unjust system. Uh, and so, um, you know, uh, the Boston Police Department has, uh, it runs on a budget of $450 million. And they had, uh, I think last year, something like $65, $70 million in overtime. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just at a point now where, where that's just way too much, uh, you know, to, to deal with having all of that money in the police department and then sort of giving out pennies to community groups who work very hard to try to make their community more peaceful. The equation has to change and has to change now. Right. So maybe perhaps when Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin knelt for nearly nine minutes on George Floyd's neck while bystanders recorded his cruelty, Maybe he might have assumed that the system would disregard, ignore, 
excuse his conduct as it had done in response to past complaints against him, or things would go so slow that he could get away with this again. Um, maybe he was expecting that. But you're saying this moment, now you've done this for 30 years, uh, and given this history, what are your thoughts about this current moment? That, in fact, that won't happen again or slow down uh, or want to this to pass while internal processes, which always have protected police officers and have almost never held them accountable for lethal violence against black people, how this could lead now to real, a moment leading to momentum and real change in transforming policing, criminal justice, and the systemic racism in all our institutions. Exactly. I think it's the moment because people are, if not actively saying it with their mouths, they're beginning to understand why the phrase Black Lives Matter has become such a touchstone in our nation. Uh, It's because, uh, you know, for those who cry for evidence, there is a ton of evidence-based work that continually points to the inequities, uh, you know, in in our communities and in cities all across the nation. Um, For those who are looking for visual evidence, you know, with the advent of the cell phone, uh, you know, you have you have it with your own eyes. You see it. You see it with your own eyes. Um, you know what occurs and and the, the attitudes that sort of come in um, that betray the reports that are usually put in by police officers when they're talking about a particular incident. Um, and, you know, and then there are folks who will will talk about. Um, you know, our work um, on how come you're not dealing with the violence, uh, you know, in your own communities. Well, we have been. We've been doing it for the past 30 years. There have been tons of community groups that have committed their uh, community individuals who have committed their lives, you know, into engaging in this work. You know, I call myself one of the original Black Lives Matters leaders. I mean, you know, I, I committed myself to this work because Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, and I really believe it's biblical. I mean, you know, for those who want to, you know, sort of crow about all lives matter, I'm like, well, you know, look at the uh, Luke 15 parables. You know, you had a hundred sheep and uh, one of them got lost. Uh, The shepherd went after the one, Uh, you know, the the 99 didn't could cry well what about us don't we matter but they're not the one that's in danger the one sheep that got lost is in danger and so that life mattered you know and in that respect uh you know we're living in an age where people are starting to understand if if a black life doesn't matter then my life doesn't matter if a black life matters then all of our lives matter and so that's where we are. So that's a theological reflection here about, but don't all sheep's lives matter? <laughs> that's a, the one in jeopardy. In fact, most matters if they're all to be saved. So given you're, you're talking about the Bible here, 
Lastly, uh, why are clergy and faith leaders so integral to the work of police reform and transformation? Because if we're going to transform everything, then people need uh, to understand why this is so important morally and ethically. I always talk about the violence on the streets, and I always say there are economic roots to the violence, there are social roots to the violence, uh, there are structural roots to the violence, but then there are also moral and spiritual roots to the violence. I've had some of my most profound theological conversations at the street level talking with youth and also talking with police officers as um, you know they've gone through their work. We need that moral voice to stand firm around this change. There are lots of folk who have lots of issues around this, and there are a lot of confusing messages that are being put out. The strength of faith leaders is the strength of being able to bring moral clarity and moral fortitude to this effort to change this society. Change never comes quickly. Uh, And then there's that old adage that says, people change when the cost of not changing becomes too great. Uh, We're at an inflection point, I believe, where, where the costs are adding up. But it takes that moral voice to be able to Uh, help people discern meaning of why they're changing and why it's important to change and why it's right to change. And so clergy ought to be on the forefront. They ought to be in the forefront in dealing with violence in their inner cities. They ought to be on the forefront in dealing with the issues around police brutality. And they ought to be on the forefront as this society changes its structure for the better. And as clergy and faith leaders bring that moral and spiritual meaning to all this, by your life, what you've always shown, too, is that clergy and faith leaders also can build the bridges that need to be built in communities where you're talking to street kids and street leaders and police officers. And this is not going to be resolved until all of the voices in communities are, are heard. So bringing the moral imperative is indeed crucial, but also bringing, building the bridges so the community can hear each other and get to know each other and see each other in that humanizing way that you talked about. So building those bridges you've shown over the years, that's crucial to this process that clergy can do as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that was clear as we started this effort of, of, of violence reduction is that we stopped looking at youth as the problem to be solved. And we started to see them for who they are. They were young, brilliant, wise, intelligent, young people engaged in a struggle with a system that has strikes against them already before they become adults. And so um, be, be, you know, being able to hear them, to listen to them, and to respond uh, to their ideas and their um, wisdom became really important to be able to, uh, you know, talk to police officers and understanding, you know, what they had to deal with on a nightly basis and, you know, their struggles um, to try to uh, shoulder, you know, all of the things that 
the larger society wanted them to shoulder when, you know, a lot of that was the responsibility of other people, you know, um, uh, you know, and now there's talk about how law enforcement uh, has taken on too much, you know, of the society, uh, you know, solutions. And, uh, you know, we need to bring more social workers, for example, uh, you know, into uh, this mix when we're dealing about problems rather than making that immediate call to law enforcement. So we were bridge builders. We talked to probation officers. We talked to the YMCA directors. We talked to, um, you know, the coaches. We talked to the gang members. We talked to the youth in schools. We talked to the young men. We talked to the young women because we understood that there was this connective tissue that needed to be built. And uh, we we helped to become that so that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, people can come together and, and live a better life. The point about who is called and who resolves something is really critical. You just said, I heard this morning, the teachers union said, we, we don't want police in our schools anymore. Do we need security? Yes, we, we do. We want to train people to be security officers within schools to help kids resolve conflicts. We have fights, we have gangs, but to bring law enforcement into that is a whole different thing and maybe isn't the best thing for maintaining and finding security and safety in our schools. So who gets the call? Who solves a problem? And men with guns uh, are not often always the right people in that moment. That's right. That's exactly right. So, we we're we're praying and hoping that what you're wanting and and calling us to today that that can happen from this moment uh, and can lead to the momentum and lead to the change where everything changes, which is so necessary. So I'm wondering, this is a pastor, brother, uh, if you could if you could in closing share a prayer with for all of us with our listeners and people who are in all these different places. Really, it's sharing a prayer for that kind of transformation, literally for the soul of this nation. Could you close us out with that kind of prayer? Oh God, thou art more dependable than a heartbeat. You're only, you're not only the light at the end of a tunnel, but you're that light of hope that dwells inside the tunnel as well. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And we are here in this moment that you have created for such a time as this, for those who hear your voice to respond to the call. And we pray, God, now that as we rise to the occasion and become the children that you want us to be, that you will continue to give us strength, give us clarity of vision, cause us to speak and to speak truth to power. And God, as things begin to change, that you instill us with love and with hope and to be able to articulate that to those who are weary and those who are thirsty, we pray, God, that you give them living water. And for these days ahead, 
I pray, Lord, that your spirit will indwell in all of us as we come together as your people. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us, Jeff. Thank you so much. I appreciate you, man. To hear more from Jeff Brown, follow him on Twitter at Recap INTL, Recap underscore INTL. And check out his website, ReverendJeffreyBrown.com. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter if you'd like at Jim Wallace. Blessings to all of you for the Soul of a Nation.